Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, everybody takes, without exception, everybody takes decisions today on the basis of what they consider to be important. Jack Grealish was interviewed after the second of Manchester City's great triumphs, the FA Cup, Saturday week ago, and triumphant over Manchester United, I'm sorry if that causes you great pain, he had this to say, this is what I've dreamed of all my life. This is what I came to this club for. Erling Haaland said virtually the same thing. This is why I came to this club. And I guess Mr. Sheikh Mansour, at the cost of 180 million between those two players, is probably saying something the same, at least I hope he is. But it is true for everybody that decisions taken today are made on the basis of what we consider to be really, really important, what we think is valuable. The person who studies for a first-class degree gets a first-class degree because they've taken you know, really significant decisions. You know, the young kid who gets 11 nines at GCSE has made some very big choices the person who makes it on stage in the West End, the same. The person who's in the pages of the Financial Times as a key business leader does so because they've considered something valuable and they've made priority as a result. Indeed, even the sluggard, the waster, you know, the couch potato, is taking decisions today on the basis of what they think is important, watching a box set. And so this evening we're kind of working away at our mindset, which we have been doing for quite a number of weeks, really. We're in the second part of the central section of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we worked hard on our mindset in the first part of the central section, and now we're continuing to work hard on our mindset. And Paul wants us to say, stay safe in productive and fruitful Christian living and so he wants, really, he wants us really to have a grown-up mind. If you look at chapter 3, verse 15, which we're heading towards, let those of us who are mature be thus minded. Think this way. And if any of you think or are minded otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So Paul wants to say kind of, if you don't think this way, well, it's time to grow up a bit. He's working on our mind. And all of us take decisions on a daily basis, on the matter of what we consider to be important, and the Apostle Paul is wanting us to get our mind right. Well, it is one of the most theologically dense sections in the whole of the New Testament. I thought you'd be glad to hear this on this hot summer morning, evening. Justifiably, I think we could spend four separate weeks just on the four verses that we just had read. They actually form one sentence. Within it, you'll find possibly the most surprising and revealing, about whether we've grown up or not, sentences in all of Paul's writing. 
And I think you'll agree with me that as a sentence, it is one of the most focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ, the intimate, precious relationship with him, which lies right at the very center of what it means to be Christian. So I count everything as loss because of the sparsing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And knowing in the Bible is always a matter, not simply of intellect, intellect is involved, but of personal, relational, intimate knowledge. That's what knowing's about when it comes to knowing God at the center. And you can see that Paul wants to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. He counts everything lost for his sake. He wants to gain Christ, verse 8. He wants to be found in Christ, verse 9. He wants to have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, verse 9. He wants to know him, that's Jesus, verse 10. He wants to share in the sufferings of Jesus, more on that later, that's verse 10. And he wants to become like him, he wants to become like Jesus Christ. So it's all Jesus from start to finish, and it's one sentence. And it's, well, I mean, theologically, it's probably the most dense piece in the whole of this letter. Verse 8 is key. Let's have a look at it again. Indeed, I count everything's lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It speaks of loss and gain. And the word for loss is the word that is used elsewhere for the loss of a cargo of a ship when it goes to the bottom of the sea. I'm not a great fan of the sea. I don't like the sea much. I enjoy fishing. And over the years, I've lost a number of items that have just gone down to the bottom, and you just can't get them back. A watch once, a pair of Ray-Bans, a number of fishing items, a mobile telephone. Don't tell the ex-treasurer who is with us this evening that actually one of the telephones went to the bottom of a river and <laughs> was never seen again. You, know, you drop it, and it's gone. And here is the Apostle Paul. But he hasn't accidentally let something slip. He's kind of done the math, as they say, and there are some things that he reckons now as loss. He's written off compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In fact, did you notice he strengthens the language in the second half of verse 8, where he says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And the word for rubbish there could be used of potato peelings or vegetable offcuts or the insides of fish or whatever it is you put into your compost bin and just chuck out. So it's a kind of refuse word, but more often it's used of excrement, of dung, of filth, of manure, of human waste. And so Paul says, look, I count all things as excrement Now, that's a big claim. If you were with us last week, you remember Paul had everything going for him. He really did. He had everything going for him by birth, by early education. He came from the right tribe, the right country. He'd been put through the right ritual ceremonies with the right people. He'd achieved the right religious qualifications. It's all there in verses 4 through 7. He was a Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had this extraordinary religious track record, excrement, compared to knowing Jesus. 
Then we need to realize that Paul was also a Roman citizen, and that was a passport to endless privilege in the Roman Empire, and that he'd been educated under the great Jewish lawyer Gamaliel, and therefore the world was at his feet. He'd been to the best law college and joined the best law firm. He was part of the leading establishment. I count all things as dung. The right school, the right college, the right university, the right degree, the right law firm, the right early career, the right promotions. Uh, You could just imagine the great Apostle Paul at his graduation ceremony being, you know, sitting there because they told him he must be the best you or whatever it happened to be that they told him. And he thought, well, hey, I've I've got everything going for me, but now I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, we need to realize that Paul, I don't think, deliberately lost all of these things. He wasn't a masochist in that sense. But he did lose them as a result of his decisions, and his decisions were decisions to labor side by side for the faith of the gospel. And there was choice involved, and when faced with the choice of obedient service and maximizing the gifts and commission that the Lord Jesus had given him, the choice was joyfully straightforward because <laughs> he'd already effectively written all of that off compared to the surpassing joy and value of knowing Christ. Will I cling desperately to my citizenship, my career, my exalted position in first century society, my privileges? Well, why would I when knowing Jesus is so much better Somebody very helpfully put it like this. Paul had a CV to die for. He chose to die for Christ. And you'll notice that phrase, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's worth spending a whole Sunday evening on that on its own. Knowing and gaining and being found in. They're all in the present tense. And it's not that Paul didn't know Jesus and felt somehow he would only come to know Jesus if he counted everything as a loss. No, he knew Jesus. And that relationship is something that he wanted to grow in and mature in and develop in. He was found in Jesus, and he wanted to remain in Jesus. And and so he said, well, such is my ongoing joy in knowing Christ Jesus my Lord that I count everything as loss. And it must leave us saying, well, what is it that makes knowing Jesus so valuable? And then in this dense, dense three verses... The position Jesus gives us to us, our status. The power Jesus provides for us. This is the surprising bit, our suffering. And then the price he's won for us, the resurrection status. Verse 9 is key. Let's have a look at it. Verse 9. And I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, That depends on faith. Now, righteousness, as we've been hearing all evening, is a position of right standing with God. He sees me as perfect. He accepts me as unblemished. If I am righteous in his sight, I am his and he delights in me. 
But Paul holds up here two types of righteousness. And the first is a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. And it's an attempt at achieving a right status with God by my own effort and my own work, my pedigree, my performance. We looked at it last week. And the second is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, that it comes from God. It depends on faith. And it's a righteous status that God provides that comes to a person who trusts in Jesus and the perfect life of Jesus' obedience, which he offered as a perfect sacrifice on the cross in the place of our sinful failure. So that as we come to Jesus, he gives us this status on the basis of his faithful, obedient sacrifice. Some have suggested that Paul actually wasn't really trusting in his own efforts, but the more general fact that he's Jewish. I simply don't think that can stand, because he talks so much about his own effort. And so what he's contrasting is human achievement, human work, human effort, human privilege, human performance... And any attempt to say that I have made myself right with God because I've earned brownie points with God or air miles to heaven or I've got the kind of top-up card and I've topped up my credit and I've got loyalty points because of what I've done and who I am. And he contrasts that with the achievement of Jesus who came down from heaven, lived a life of perfect obedience, succeeded where we have failed, offered his life with its unblemished, perfect record as a sacrifice for all that we've done wrong. And any person who trusts in Jesus can benefit from that work as a gift. I mean, the verse is very clear, isn't it? Nine, be, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but rather one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And compared to having that right status with God, both in this life and on the day when I stand before God as my judge, nothing else compares. It's excrement relative to. He wants to be found in him like the baby in the womb, like the fish in the water. You're in Christ. You benefit from everything that Christ has won. It's a gift. Did you notice the number of times that gift is stressed? Just look at it. See if you can count them up. It comes through faith in Christ. It comes from God. It depends on faith. It's a gift. It's not earned. It comes on the basis of simple trust. It comes through the faithful work of another. It's awful to offered to all those who are found in Christ. And so says Paul, all of this other stuff, whether it's my Roman citizenship or the qualifications or the degree I got or the place I've achieved or whatever it has, compared to the value of being found in Christ, it is... Well, there's a word for it that's very rude, and I'm not going to use it. Excrement. So here we have two classes of asset. My achievement, my pedigree, my performance, my privileges. 
Christ's work, God's approval, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection. One, filth. The other, eternal value. Everyone, without exception, takes decisions today on the basis of what they consider valuable. And Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, this positional statement, which is what it is, this status opens up to us the power statement that we see in verse 10. And here Paul is speaking about the resurrection power of God, which brought Jesus from the grave, being unleashed in the life of the believer, such that any Christian believer who follows Jesus is able to live a life of selfless service in the footsteps of Christ Jesus. And I think as we read verse 10, you might agree with me that it is one of the most surprising verses in the whole of the New Testament. But when we come to a verse that surprises us, the problem is not with the verse, but with us. And given that Paul wants us to have a mature mindset, it has struck me that because I find this verse surprising, I need to grow up. So if you would, I'm going to ask you to cover the last seven words of verse seven. Now I know uh, verse 10, sorry, the last seven words of verse 10. You should be able to see as far as and may share in his, okay? And the next word, which I know you know what it is, but nonetheless, we're going to pretend that you don't. And you've got to have great skill to cover those words because they're on two lines. If your fingers are like telegraph poles like mine, you've got a lot of trouble here. But now we're going to read this sentence up until the word his, not the next word, I bet somebody does, and we're going to stop at the word his. And we're going to read it all together. Okay, you ready? This is called participation. <laughs> Never say that we're not all in it together. Verse 10, that I, together, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his... Somebody said it, but anyway, there we go. We'll pretend you didn't and we don't actually know what it... Keep it covered, keep it... No cheating. How would you finish it? Have you considered the raw power of the resurrection that is unleashed into the believer as a result of being counted righteous in Jesus? The unbeliever has no power of resurrection because they're not considered righteous. But once you're found in Christ, you're considered right with God. And now the raw power of the resurrection is at work within us. And I guess we'll only realize just what this raw power is as we think about the reality of death. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, lying dead in the grave, was brought alive. I mean, that has never to die again. That has never, ever happened. The raw power of God's creative resurrection force 
floods. You think of that dam that we've seen pictures of, and I was preparing this as we saw the picture. You saw the water flooding through with such power, and I was thinking, here is the resurrection power of God that floods into the believer that if you trust in Jesus, you're considered right with God now, and God's resurrection power is at work within you. And how would you complete that sentence? Don't look look at it with with your fingers, fingers covering it. Because I think most of us would say, well, the raw power of God's resurrection floods into my life so that I can live my best life now. I I can, you know, achieve something in the company. I can have health and wealth and gain promotion or maybe something slightly more kind of Christian because we feel we ought to. I can can do some good here and there and so forth. But Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Literally, the word is partner. We've had it several times in Philippians that I may have partnership in the suffering of Jesus. So the resurrection power of God floods into the life of the Christian in order that we may share in Christ's suffering. And does that surprise us? Because if it surprises you, as it surprises me, it means that we're still rather immature. And Paul thinks we need to grow up. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. Remember what we discovered back in chapter 2. That Jesus, since he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited for his own profit but made himself nothing and emptied himself into the form of a slave, becoming a being found in human form, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So that Jesus, because he was God, this is how he behaved. This is what God is like. This is why God is so glorious and wonderful that in his very essence is selfless service. Now, would it not be quite bizarre if the resurrection power of God flooded into my life to achieve something other than selfless sacrificial service for the sake of the lost. It it would be absurd, really. And if I were to think that actually the resurrection power of God floods into my life to achieve something other than the very character of God, which is selfless service, it shows that really I'm sort of needing to go back to key stage one. No servant is greater than his master, says Jesus. If anyone come after me, they must take up their cross and follow me, says Jesus. I want to partner in his suffering, says Paul. And this is a joyful thing because it is the very essence of God to be selfless and sacrificial and servant-hearted for the sake of lost people facing an eternity in hell. And all of us who are mature ought to be like-minded. And this will keep us safe. This will ensure fruitful living. 
And so I count everything as excrement compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and being found in him and living a life of selfless service where sacrifice and service come ahead of me. But Paul isn't quite finished, and you will see then he moves to verse 11, which again contains, it's the final major theological concept in this densely packed sentence. And once again, the verse is not intended to suggest that Paul's participation in the resurrection from the dead is in doubt. The resurrection from the dead, I, I, would, I wish we wrote it with a capital T, capital R, capital F, capital T, capital R, the resurrection from the dead. It refers to the day of the return of Jesus Christ when he comes back in triumph and issues the command to all people who have ever lived and are now asleep in their graves and summons every single one to judgment, some to an eternity of condemnation, cut off from God for having rejected God and not been forgiven, and others to an eternity of joyful fellowship with the God who is selfless, sacrificial, and servant-hearted. I mean, I can't wait for the day. I hope you can't wait either for that great day when he will return. And Paul is in no doubt that he's going to be there. When he says by any means possible, he means that it could be, he could reach the destination by a, a, a number of different routes, if you like, trial and execution. Sudden death when he's traveling. He might go down with one of the boats. Or the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus returns, who's been given the name that is above every name, before whom every knee will bow, whose name every tongue will confess that he is Lord and who stands above every name in heaven on earth, Paul says, I'm, I'm longing to be found there. I, I, I want to be there and therefore I'm prepared to count Everything as excrement compared to the surpassing worth of being there on that great day, being found in him with his righteous status, having his resurrection power within so I live a life of fruitful, selfless, sacrificial service and ultimately hearing the well done, good and faithful servant and rising triumphant with Christ from the grave. And so we finish by asking, well, the question, I mean, at the four o'clock congregation, there are a lot of um, teens doing their GCSEs and um, A-levels and all this sort of stuff. And so I said to the grown-ups, look, it's time, you, all these poor guys have been doing exams, it's time we did some exams as well. So how mature are we really? Paul says, all of us who are mature ought to be thus minded. Do we need some remedial? That glorious gift that I might have to play the violin or piano or flute or drums, how do I think of it compared to Jesus? Excrement. That acting and singing career that beckons with the possibility of my name in lights, how do I consider it relative to knowing Jesus? Filth. 
that sporting ability, that opportunity that could have me, you know, on the team bus or whatever it happens to be, how do I view that compared to the possibility of a lifetime of fruitful service honoring Jesus? Done. That academic achievement, you know, with my name embossed, the graduate gown or the PhD or whatever, uh, manure, that career advancement, human waste, that new job, new car, new membership, new pay packet, there's a word for it. I'm not going to use it. It's a rude word. One of my heroes is um, a guy called John Sung. There won't be many Asians in the world who can't in one way or another, I suspect, trace their Christian heritage if they're Christian back to John Sung. John Sung in one way or another, he's a great hero. In the early 20th century, he was one of the first from China to go across the United States of America to do his education at degree and PhD level. And in the late 1920s, he completed his degree in 18 months and his PhD in the next 18 months. I'm looking at the student section here because come on. And he, aimed, he, he earned every medal you can imagine. You know, he was top of his year. He was uh, um, the fraternity keys and, you know, he was absolute. And, but very early on in his time, he became a Christian. And uh, you, know, you know how Asians set great store on these kind of evidences of Finnish scholarship, and he was no exception, and all of these qualifications would have been an opening into a career which would have been as brilliant as it would have been remunerative. And he came back to China on the boat, and as the vessel neared the end of the voyage, Johnson went down to his cabin took out his cabin trunk, his diplomas, his medals, his fraternity keys, and dropped them over the edge of the boat. He kept one document to honor his father and show him that he had actually achieved something. And then he gave his life to the proclamation of the gospel. Let's close there, shall we? Just to start with a question from a previous talk, I think when you spoke about not grumbling from a few weeks ago. Don't places like the Psalms of Lament suggest we're allowed to grumble? How should we fit this with what we saw in Philippians 2? Yeah, thank you very much. Well, what I tried to do was to link this into Deuteronomy chapter 32 and, or 30 and the grumbling there, which is a grumbling against God in his salvation purposes. So I think, we, yes, we are allowed to express... You know, the Psalms are very open. How long, O oh Lord, will this go on? You know, Lord, won't you return and put an end to it? Absolutely. And I love the Psalms for that reason, because, but there is a difference between that and, Lord, um, I want to be done with um, the, the salvation that you've won for me, and I'd rather go back to Egypt and to the leeks and onions that you read of the Israelites grumbling in uh, Exodus and Numbers. And, you know, that, that's a very difficult line, if you know what I mean, to know quite 
where you're at. It's the sort of thing to talk about and pray with, with a good Christian friend. But the Psalms are marvelous because they do. They're so human, aren't they? They're, they're, they recognize the reality of our human experience and how sometimes things can be just miserable and we have an opportunity to say to the Lord, how long? But you'll find again and again and again, it's within the context of a recognition of God's salvation. I mean, the very sense, how long, O Lord, it comes within the expectation of a salvation. And it's not, well, I don't want to be Christian at all. I'm out of here. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul mentions suffering. Um, but William mostly talked about selfless sacrifice in the interest of others, the mind of Christ. What's the specific significance of the word suffering there? Why didn't Paul write to sacrifice, if that's what he meant? Well, thank you. Very good. That's a very helpful comment. Thank you. And I think I'm thinking about it just off the cuff like this. I think verse 29 and 30 of chapter 1, Paul talks about the Philippians being engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And there he talks about that you should not only believe in Jesus, but also suffer for his sake. So I think those two things are very tightly connected. And and it causes me to ask the question from chapter 1, verse 30, what was the conflict that the Philippians saw Paul having and hear of him currently having? And the conflict came as a result of his proclamation of the gospel and his determination to proclaim the gospel and stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, with others proclaiming the faith of the gospel, the public declaration of the gospel. Uh, And it came in uh, Acts 16 when he was in Philippi as a result of um, the slave girl becoming a Christian and her owners stirring up a riot against Paul. So I think the two are very tightly connected. And when you get to chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, then you find Jesus' suffering tied very tightly to his selfless sacrificial service. So I'm sorry for that shorthand in the talk, but I think the two are so very tightly connected that I'm quite content, I think, to hold those two things together. But the suffering is certainly... That which came to Paul as a result of his open partnership in proclaiming the gospel. It came from the Jews and it came from the Romans. It came as a result of religious opposition and it came as a result of those who felt the bottom line, their money was going to be impacted. And you'll find both to be true. Thank you very much. Is counting everything as lost the same as giving up everything? Oh, that's a very, very good question. Thank you. That's what I wanted to say. It's, I mean, it may be. It may well be. And I don't want us to rule that out. You know, for, for numbers of us here, um, well, for all of us, we have to be able to say, I am prepared to give everything up. Um, we're not encouraged to become dependent upon the church. I mean, we are encouraged to work for a living. The only people who should be dependent on the church are those who are set aside to teach the Bible by the church. But um, otherwise, we should be, you know, working, earning our keep, 
and so forth. So, I mean, the question is um, counting everything the same as um, giving up everything. Well, it's difficult, isn't it? And, and the trouble with a question like that is even now we can beginning to think of kind of loophole sort of clauses. That, that's why I'm sort of edging around it a bit. Because I think I want to say, I've got to be prepared to say, in terms of fruitful service for the Lord Jesus, Lord, I want always to make the decision, the decision that is going to maximize fruitfulness for the gospel, for your sake. And I think you'll only be able to do that if you count everything as rubbish. Otherwise, you'll be like Gollum, you know, my precious, I must hang on to this. And that will restrict your usefulness and mine too. So we've got to be, I mean, I've, I've been thinking about this for two weeks. I mean, if you think it's tough listening to it just once, but, and yet it's a joy. And that's the trouble, you see. I think it is, it, when, we, when we see things the way God sees things, and when we realize what God truly values, selfless service, that decision is not a costly decision. It's a joyful thing, as I say. Actually, it's a great relief. Now, the Lord may, as you do that, give you, he's so generous, he may give you extraordinary things and blessings you never imagined having. And that's the remarkable thing about the Lord. You know, he suddenly you find yourself with treasures beyond anything you can imagine, brothers, sisters, lands, you know, and all, all the blessings you can imagine. I mean, that's my testimony. And, um, and yet, you have to count everything as loss. I'll let it go, Lord. Just have I answered the question, Luke? I think so. What would you add? <laughs> uh, nothing that helpful. I, I was always struck in Mark's gospel when uh, Jesus says, and those who give up their life for me and the gospel, it's not just a random um, giving up to beat up. I don't know if this is what, it's exactly the same line. It's not a random giving ourselves up or looking for suffering. It's for my sake and for the gospel. Mm. Um, and that's why I wanted to say up front, Paul is not a masochist. He's not saying, ha-ha, you know, how can I um, it, it find some suffering? But when it comes to the choice of fruitful living, do I actually, and we need to cultivate you know, I, I don't know what you, whether you, know, you go to the dentist, they have all their qualifications. I suppose you, you're quite glad they have their qualifications up on the wall, actually. <laughs> when you go to the dentist, that's not a bad thing, is it? But do you know what I mean? You'll have these precious trinkets and, hey, you know, they're done, really. You know, you've got, you've got a first from, you know, Oxford. I mean, manure, really, please, please. What do you call that, precious? I mean, give me a break, says Paul. Really? You've got into a law firm in London. I mean, really, excrement. Relative to knowing Jesus as Lord, excrement. And it's only when you've got that mindset, you know, you're going to appear on stage in the West End, or you're a doctor. Done. Done. It's only when you've got that mindset that we will be able to make fruitful decisions about using our life. doesn't mean that if you got a doctor qualification, you're not going to be a doctor, but let's treat the doctor thing as Paul sees it, human waste. Thank you. And there's lots of questions along these lines. Sorry if I don't ask your one, but I'll ask this 
representatively. Thank you for your great word and reminder of the beauty of the gospel and the hope we have in Christ. How do we balance the need to focus on Christ while also honouring him with the good gifts he has given us uh, and using them for his glory, thinking of the parable of the talents? Thanks. Oh, wow. There's quite a lot there. Um, I don't think the parable of talents is about what that lovely question suggests it is about. The parable of the talents is not about balancing my talents. Talents in the New Testament refers to a sum of money, not Britain's Got Talent. Although, actually, from the winner of Britain's Got Talent, it's Norway, isn't it? And it's not talent. But anyway, we won't go into that. Uh, Sorry, I got slightly diverted there. But... um, But talent in the Bible is not about what, you know, know, Johnny's good at the flute, Jemima plays the clarinet, you know, Eddie is on the banjo and Britain's got talent. That's not what talent, talent is a sum of money. And so the parable of talents is about maximizing everything God has given me for the gospel. And I don't think that's a matter of balance. I hope you're imbalanced. Just on a similar line, how should I regard my gifts uh, or work abilities then? Surely we can praise God for giving them to us so that we can have, so they have at least some value. Yeah, I think they're valuable for earning money and feeding yourself and your family and helping other people insofar as you treat them as excrement. But the moment they start becoming so precious that you won't make a choice for Jesus, then they are a complete waste. And, a, and actually a serious problem. And I should go and do a different job. There are plenty of other jobs to do. You know, I mean, you can get a job. The job market is pretty good. in you pick, 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 Picking vegetables, there, there is a big need for people to pick vegetables. So if being a doctor is becoming an impediment to you making decisions to serve the Lord Jesus, well, for a start, it's seasonal. So, you know, you need, wouldn't get beyond about... October, and then again in February there's sprouts and so forth, but anyway, you know. But if it becomes an impediment, then I think to, to making gospel decisions, um, then I think it, uh, you know, so they're good things. They're valuable in that they feed us and they help people and so forth. But the moment they become an impediment to making gospel decisions, then they're in the way. Thank you. And just a couple of questions about last week. Last week, you spoke about those who follow a Jesus plus approach. How do you go about speaking to those who believe that they are saved by faith, uh, but do the Jesus plus activities because they believe it brings them closer to God and keeps them focusing on Jesus as opposed to earthly wants, uh, e.g. Orthodox Christians? Mm, Thank you. Well, I want to say, I think that there are many real Christians, as I said last week, um, in the Catholic and Orthodox Church. So, but I, I would want to help them to see within the Orthodox way of thinking and Catholic Christian, Christian way of thinking that um, within the Catholic system, these things are um, understood by true Catholics and true Orthodox people to be ways in which you earn yourself right with God. And then I want, I think, to say all this stuff, which is focused around buildings and ceremonies and so forth, 
Um, I, I want to try and help them to see that actually what God is concerned with in terms of our life of worship is what goes on out there um, just as much as what goes on in here. And I think I want to be saying to somebody like that, I, I, are you sure that all of this isn't distracting you from living your life out there? Um, but I, within the Catholic and Orthodox system, those things are works religion. Um, yeah. I think that's where I'd start. I'd be a lot more to say. Thank you. In one of your messages, you spoke about people seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit as an addition to the gospel. How do we consider the many Christians throughout history who, like Paul, have received this gift of speaking in tongues today? And where in the Bible does it say we're not to seek or expect to receive this from God? Or that the baptism of the Spirit is additional. Oh, thank you very much. I agree. Um, well, the baptism of the Spirit happens at conversion. And where you are told that uh, the baptism of the Spirit is a conversion experience, most clearly, I think, is Romans 8. So why don't we just turn there for a moment? <coughs> Romans 8, page 1137. Verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. In you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the baptism of the spirit biblically understood, is a conversion experience. And what I was speaking about, and I've tried to put some flesh around it to make this clear, was that some people will come to you and say you need an additional baptism of the Spirit beyond a conversion experience. That is gospel plus. And it's divisive. It divides the church because it suggests there are some people who have been baptized by the Spirit who are Christian, but some people who are Christian but haven't quite got it. The kind of language you might hear used is of boilers, that is heating boilers, with the pilot light on, but then boilers with full blast gas going. And it suggests, I mean, it's a very ugly um, way of thinking. It suggests that there are first and second class Christians some people are true Christians, some people who aren't really Christian, but a sort of Christian, uh, but because ha- they haven't had the baptism of the Spirit. No, you can't be a Christian unless you have been baptized in the Spirit. Those who push strongly for this second initiatory experience and full salvation, as it's sometimes used, to s- then say it's has, it comes as accompanied with supernatural gifts such as speaking in tongues. Again, I think there's a profound misunderstanding there because in the New Testament, speaking in tongues, most clearly understood, is speaking in recognizable human languages, not speaking in unrecognizable gobbledygook. And so to to equate speaking in tongues with a second experience and at the same time to say that speaking in tongues is speaking unrecognizable nonsense is, I think, to put together two substantial errors which 
are classic of what Paul's talking about here because they suggest that one person is a higher-grade Christian than another, and you end up trusting in this higher-grade experience. It actually does everything that the circumcision and so forth does. It makes you, you know, an inner group, and it all goes on in the building and, and so forth. So I'm, uh, I, that's, that's, I think if you go back and listen to that talk, it was three weeks ago now, I tried to put some of the flesh around that. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for all your questions. I'm sorry there's so many we haven't been able to get to. I'm sure William will be here afterwards for a bit. You could ask him, or why not ask the people around you as well and see what you think um, from Philippians. But maybe if I ask the music guys to get up as we ask um, the last question uh, for, for now, which is, why is it that we struggle to model the servant mindset of Christ? How do we practically grasp or, or long for better? Yeah, well, I think, I think the practical answer is to pray that the power of the resurrection will dwell within us and to, come to, to grow up, to come to know Christ better. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it, in the Gospels? Those of you who study Mark's Gospel, which is many people here, will see just how, how the disciples find it so hard to get this. Oh, can I sit on your right? Can I sit on your left when you come into your kingdom? Who's the greatest amongst us? And, and, you know, I've, as I've been looking at this for the last two weeks, I've been thinking to myself, I'm just like the disciples, and I need the power of the resurrection within me, that resurrection power, to lead me to mature Christian thinking and mature Christian decision-making. And if you pray earnestly for that resurrection power, that, I think, is how we do it. But then we're together, and this whole letter is about striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, about partnership in the gospel, and so together, I, I think this is a great thing for us to talk about. I mean, I think we've only just scratched the surface, haven't we, this evening? And for us to be chatting over at After Eights and thinking and praying about it, what's this going to mean for you with your particular gifts and so forth to count them as excrement compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and to deploy them for the sake of the gospel? Uh, and I think that's how we can really make progress.